0: if you have a Bible there we go Uh, we're in Acts chapter 19 today and we will be looking at verses 1 through 22 as we retrace the steps of the mission to Ephesus one thing that might uh, highlight your attention as we get into this is in the book of Revelation there are letters to seven churches all seven churches are in this region where Paul is doing the ministry here in Ephesus. all in Asia Minor, or what is today known as Turkey. Hear now the word of the Lord. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit and he said into what then were you baptized they said into John's baptism and Paul said John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him that is Jesus on hearing this they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, Speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks." And while God was and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of their house naked and wounded and in uh, this became known to all the residents of ephesus both jews and greeks and fear fell upon them all and the name of the lord jesus was extolled also many of those who were now believers came confessing And divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. In a minute, I'll translate for you it was quite a sum of money. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after how I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. This is God's word let us pray father we do pray today that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word that is truth and we pray that as we hear the word we would be greatly helped by the ministry of the holy spirit who indwells us that we would be given the ability to see and perceive that which is vital and necessary and helpful and edifying for ourselves And we pray that Jesus would receive glory today, for he alone is worthy, and because we have been together in his presence. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now to do a little house cleaning, last week, you remember we preached and Paul had taken a vow and cut his hair off, and I never told you what he did with his hair. And it's just bugging me all week. I I didn't tell you. And I thought you might want to know this, especially Keith in Sunday school mentioning sacrifices. Paul took the hair that he had cut off with him to Jerusalem, which is why he left Ephesus early when he was teaching in the synagogues, and it seemed to be a very receptive thing, but he wanted to fulfill the vow. There were some practices of Judaism that Paul kept doing that were not of the essence of the gospel. But as a thanksgiving offering for God protecting him in Corinth he traveled and as you know he went up to Jerusalem and then uh, back down to Syrian Antioch. But when he went to Jerusalem more than likely he took the hair he had cut off and presented it burned it on the altar as a sacrifice also offering Uh, as a thanksgiving offering the hair as an expression of gratitude for what the Lord had done for him but now we're back in Ephesus and Paul is back in Ephesus and this is one of the most exciting uh, chapters uh, the whole series on Exodus in all of the Bible because we all love the book of Ephesians and we all should But this mission to uh, Ephesus was amazing. It was the principal city and the capital of Asia Minor. Ephesus' strategic position made her the treasure house house of Asia and the mother of materialism and ambition. Ephesus was the site of the temple of Artemis or Diana. And all I will tell you about Artemis or Diana was she was a multi-breasted goddess who was worshipped in Ephesus in quite a temple. Uh, The temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. Now the multiple breasts for the goddess uh, was indication that she was a fertility god. In other words, if you wanted life to go well for you, you wanted your crops to go or your business to prosper or things to go better in your life or healing or whatever, you would go to the temple and offer the sacrifices. She, uh, uh, Ephesus was the uh, temple of Artemis or Diana. Um, 127 marble pillars rose 60 feet to support the gorgeous ceiling, many of them inlaid with gold and rare gems. The temple's huge canopy covering an area 425 uh, feet in length and 250 feet in width housed the multi-breasted image of Artemis, supposed to have fallen from the stars. This temple was the center for a thriving cult fertility worship. The size of the temple was twice the size of the Parthenon in Athens but also was a little bit larger than your average football field. So it was a pretty good sized place. Ephesus became a collecting location for superstition and the dark arts. I would say Ephesus reminds me a lot of the city of New Orleans having lived there. Um, There's a lot of dark arts in New Orleans. It's Voodooville more than you think and um, it was a collecting place for the superstition and dark arts a cesspool of the occult aware of this later on Paul wrote to Ephesus and said this for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so the Bible in its world view has in its understanding of the nature of reality. Spiritual forces of darkness with various ranks. And apparently are assigned at times to geographic locations. So let me just put it simple here. In Ephesus there was quite a cluster of demonic presence and activity and as always Paul started in the synagogue in Ephesus and um, he began uh, speaking there and he had one of his longest hearings three months and his message was reasoning or literally dialoguing and exchanging question and answer give and take some were persuaded by Paul's reasoning some were not When persecution set in, Paul and his followers made arrangements to continue the dialogue in a rented hall, which I'll talk about more so in in a moment. But um, when Paul arrives back in Ephesus, uh, 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 he runs into some disciples of John the Baptist, who had sort of partial or faulty knowledge And they had an adequate experience of the reality of the gospel. They only knew John's baptism and they had not received the Holy Spirit according to verses 2 and 3. It's very clear that that was going on. Um, At this time, Apollos was back in Corinth preaching and watering the seeds Paul had planted. But Paul runs into a group who identified themselves as belonging to sort of a residual uh, pocket of Old Testament believers. Uh, Anticipatory faith that had somehow been bypassed by the news of Jesus' redemptive work. They responded, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul runs into these people who insisted uh, and throughout church history this has been a a a passage in which there's been a lot of controversy. As a matter of fact uh, these passages that we're looking at today provide the basis for the support of a two-stage experience of Christ that many Pentecostals and charismatic friends hold. For example they believe you can receive Christ and be converted but later on in a second stage of experience then you receive the holy spirit and you become spirit filled for example when i was in high school there was a a classmate of mine who played football with me and uh, to say that he was uh, mentally limited would be correct um, he he was a bull in a china shop. This guy would just duck his head and ram whatever. And so um, I can remember him in football games. It, it, you just had to point him in the right direction because he didn't know what a play was. But if the other people had on a different uniform and you told him to hit him, he would hit him. And he would knock him into next week. So lo and behold, after I became a Christian and I was pastoring a church near my hometown... He came to one of the services, and I saw him in the back. And so uh, I waved at him. He waved at me. And so at the end of the service, he came up to me, and he said, uh, I hear you become a Christian. And I said, well, yeah, uh, the Lord saved me, and I'm grateful for his work in my life. And he says, are you spirit-filled? And by that, he meant... Had I had the second stage experience? See, Christians are of two ranks, so to speak, or two stages. Those who had believed in Christ and those who had received the Holy Spirit uh, with the attesting evidence of speaking in tongues. So he wanted to know if I had it. And I tried to explain to him the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it but he meant the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he told me this story that about a week ago he'd been at his church and they were worshiping and things got exciting and he said he was slain by the Spirit and he got up and started dancing in the Spirit and then he ran out the back of the church and forgot to open the doors and just like he did on the football field, he rammed his way through the back doors and he had this lump on his head when I was talking to him. And I said, is that where that happened? And he said, yeah. He said, that's the mark of the Spirit. And I said, okay. And then he said, he said but you know what? You know how I know it was the Holy Spirit leading me to do that? And I said, no, tell me. And he said, well, it, it didn't hurt. There was no pain. And I thought, boy, I need to talk to this guy. I really need to. I never saw him again after that. I don't know where he went. Uh, The Spirit may have swept him up somewhere else. But it was a fascinating discussion. But what do we make of it? Well, let's talk about it. Uh, There have been those who have insisted that these 12 men here in Ephesus were real Christians, that is, born again, but they had not received the Holy Spirit's power with the accompanying sign of speaking in tongues. Many Pentecostal churches and Charismatic have pointed to this as a norm for Christians who are first born again and later receive the Holy Spirit. But that is a very dubious reading of this passage. These men evidently called themselves disciples of Christ, But most scholars and commentators, including many charismatic ones, such as Michael Green, acknowledge that these 12 are clearly not Christians. How do we know that? Are they Christians? Well, first Paul asks if they have evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They respond that they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. That shows that these men did not hear the gospel from anyone who went out from Christ's church. No one would preach the gospel without talking about, as Peter did on the day of Pentecost, the spiritual new birth that attended the preaching of the gospel. This ignorance of the Holy Spirit... Uh, both intellectual and personal is not characteristic of a person who's been regenerate or born again who needs spiritual power. These men were devoid of the Holy Spirit at all. Second, we notice that when they did not receive the Holy Spirit, Luke says, So Paul asks, then what baptism? This shows the fact that they, they did not receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, that they did not receive the Holy Spirit was abnormal. Paul says, if this is the case, how did you receive Christ at the beginning? He does not proceed and say, oh, well, then you need to have me lay hands on you so you can receive power. Rather, there's a lack of spiritual experience, and it makes him reexamine their foundations. Clearly, this is not a norm for anyone. So what are the elements, Paul asks? What baptism did you receive and discover that it was John's? Paul responds that John's baptism was, in essence, a half of the gospel, the bad news of repentance. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, but he told the people to believe in the one coming in Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, you repented, but you did not believe. You're only half, you've only heard half of the gospel. You understand you're sinful. You understand you need to turn from your sinful ways. But nobody told you who to turn to. You've turned away, but you haven't turned to or toward anyone. In other words, he's saying, uh, you didn't believe. John told you, uh that you did need to eventually believe, and now I tell you about the one whom you must now trust. In a sense, Paul is using the term baptism here uh, to mean message. John's message was not the full gospel. He showed people that they could not save themselves by their good works, or by their morals, or by their religion. In other words, he showed people that they couldn't save themselves. That's the first half of the gospel. To be a real Christian, you first have to know what you need to repent of. And you do not repent just of your sins, but you also repent of your righteousnesses. Things that you think make you acceptable to God. Things that you think are a a, a credit to you and not a liability. But Paul declares to us the same Um, speaker in the book of Philippians that he counted all things lost. He perceived his righteousness as scubala, as uh, feces. That's the best I can say. That's what he considered his righteousness as. And so these people had understood that part of the message But they had only heard the first half of the gospel, a true and right step, but there's a second half to the gospel in order to become a Christian, and that is to believe in the one who comes after John. Now Paul explains the way of Christ to them. Uh, We do not know what they didn't understand. It could have been that they didn't understand the meaning of Christ's death or the meaning of his resurrection and ascension and intercession for us. But after hearing this, they were baptized into the name of Jesus. The phrase into the name means they came to know who Jesus was. And so, this time God showed everyone that they had been born again with a visible manifestation of power. That is, with speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, does every, is every person now supposed to evidence true faith in Jesus Christ and being born again by speaking in tongues and prophesying? No. This was temporary. This was limited to the time of the book of Acts as the gospel penetrated new people groups and new cities, often miracles, and uh, many Pentecosts Uh, attended the preaching of the gospel to accredit both the preacher and the reality of the experience but that was a temporary thing the book of Acts is not where you build the doctrine of understanding the Holy Spirit in your life that's later on in the epistles which interpret the meaning of Acts and the Gospels do you know that about your Bible when you read the Bible both the four Gospels and the book of Acts are looked back upon and interpreted uh, through the epistles, both General and Pauline. And so that's exactly what happens here uh, because later on Paul will say that to be in Christ is to be united with him by the Spirit. You are baptized into the body of Christ and connected by the Holy Spirit. And so there was an authenticating, a certifying of the reality of the message and the preachers. But the elements are these, then. There must be repentance. You cannot be a Christian without repenting. There must be faith in Jesus Christ. That is, you must look outside of yourself and stop relying upon yourself to save yourself and cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. You Velcro yourself to Christ, as it were. You stick to him. You cleave to him, as the subject is used in Genesis for marriage but there also is something that happens to us internally there's justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone that is a legal outside of you declaration by God that you're right with him but there's also something that happens inside of you The Holy Spirit draws you to Christ, and you experience the new birth and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes a Christian a Christian, and without those matters, you are not one. Not yet. That's the reality of who and what a Christian is. The Holy Spirit indwells us. That means the person of the Holy Spirit has interpenetrated our being and now in some sense indwells us. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. They, He indwells us. That's what a Christian is. From top to bottom. And so we are thankful that the book of Acts gave it. But, When we look at Paul and his operations here in uh, the city of Ephesus, uh, one of the uh, more interesting things is uh, the way that Paul carried on his mission, the method he used in Ephesus, and the difference between what he did in Corinth and Athens. First, we can see some similarities. He began and started with the synagogue where uh, he can always get two things done he can discharge his passionate burden and obligation to win his own people to christ he even asked god that or informed the lord that he would be willing to be cursed if his uh brethren the jews would come to christ i don't quite have that passion um i don't understand how you can have that passion but he did And he wanted to win strategic people to the faith, the God-fearers, who are the natural bridges to the broader pagan society. He did that in Athens. He did it at Corinth, and he's doing it here in Ephesus. After winning some disciples, he took them into a new venue to reach the Gentile public by going into the lecture hall of Tyrannus and the lecture hall of Tyrannus, by the way the word Tyrannus means tyrant, I don't know why it's called the lecture hall of the tyrant, but that's what it was called, but let's talk a little bit about this lecture hall, Um, on the surface the move to the halls of Tyrannus does not seem to be very significant, but this change shows Paul's aggressiveness and determination in assaulting the powers of darkness. The text says Paul rented Tyrannus's quarters from the fifth hour to the tenth hour, that is from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. That was when the people of Ephesus took their midday siesta. The workday began at 7, broke at 11 and continued from 4 until about 9:30 in the evening. Paul made tents during the morning hours and taught between 11 and 4 and then went back to work. Paul says in chapter 20 and verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities. Paul kept a killer schedule. Religion was the big business in Ephesus, and Paul was determined to keep himself free from any suspicion by by receiving no money at all for what he did. He paid his own way, and he taught five hours a day, six days a week, 52 weeks a year for two years, 3,120 hours of lecture. That's a lot. This is equivalent to 130 days of lecturing continuously for 24 hours a day. Paul was a determined man who at great personal cost made a relentless assault for Christ against the fortresses of evil. And so this aspect of his character dominates what we see here in verses 8 through 12. But he goes to the lecture hall and uh he did something similar in uh athens he went to the marketplace and in our uh corinth he went to the home of Titius Justus. but his teaching no matter where he went usually uh ended up in an uproar and rioting determined but there are some dissimilarities in paul's method and i want to talk about that for a moment the lecture hall ministry was a first for paul Though it was something like the marketplace ministry in Athens, this was a public meeting, a place, a school. Unlike home meetings in Corinth, this was more of an academic setting. It was important to see that this was not preaching, but rather he held discussions daily. The translation, seeking to get across the Greek word dia to dialogue, and it's very daring because it allows the non-believing listener to partially set the agenda, to raise questions, to respond. It's not like a sermon. It's not a gospel presentation. It is a determined give and take. And it's also not like friendship evangelism since it was done with all comers. And it's not like the informal dialogues on the streets, since listeners can return week after week it's most likely like a class. So this dialogue evangelism in public places with all comers is different than the preaching evangelism in the synagogues. This was biblically literate people and consisted of long biblical sermons. The contact evangelism in the marketplace, this was essentially street evangelism with strangers and probably consisted of a short presentation of the gospel Followed by give and take dialogue. Then there was friendship evangelism in homes. This was with friends and relatives and consisted of informal conversations. And then there was apologetic evangelism in the Areopagus on Mars Hill. This is with the cultural elites and consists of a well-reasoned, apologetic, or defense of the gospel, using authorities and sources that are well-respected. And so we see a great variety of types and styles of evangelism occurring in the book of Acts. And that gives validity to the various ways we do evangelism and how we need to grow in our doing Of evangelism in Las Vegas Nevada but as we look at Paul's missionary methods they were impressive and he had such a passion for reaching people but then we come to what I would call the power ministry that Paul exercised the powerful signs of Christ's kingdom We have seen the persuasive word of Christ's kingdom as he taught in the synagogue for three months, as he preached the way he once persecuted, as he had gone to uh, Tyrannus Hall to lecture in the afternoon. Um, Obviously had enough people there to keep it up. So Ephesus was a pagan center dominated not only by the idolatry that took place at the temple of Artemis, but also by flourishing magical and spiritist trades that claim to be able to control unseen powers. To gain the Ephesians' attention, the Lord kindly condescended to show his power at work in Paul in very tangible ways, pushing back the oppressive dominion of Satan. Power is the theme of this section. In Greek, power the ESV calls it miracles, opens up verse 11, which literally reads, powers beyond the usual God was doing through Paul's hands. Likewise, grew in power is the final word of the summary that closes verse 20. God made use even of the sweaty headbands and work aprons that Paul used as he worked uh, again in Priscilla and Aquila's leather shop, uh, the means by which his healing power flowed to people afflicted by illness and or demonic possession. As Israel's sufferers had reached out to the tassels on Jesus' robe and sought healing in Peter's shadow, so now people grabbed any cloth that had touched Paul's skin and rushed it into their suffering loved ones. AIDS and other epidemics make it natural to view disease as a contagious aggressor and good health as a fragile oasis in a wasteland of suffering. In Jesus' and his apostles, however... Health and wholeness provided contagious, and the miseries that plague human life were forced to retreat. Although God accommodates his self-disclosure to our limited and somewhat confused capacities, he will not let us make the mistake that his sovereign power for a force is subject to our manipulation. A no- notorious failed attempt to use Jesus' name as a magic talisman convinced everyone who heard of it that the Jesus whom Paul preached was no mere wonder worker, but the Lord to be revered. And so Paul begins this assault, as it were, on the dark castle, the kingdom of darkness. And miracles occurred that were astounding and So Paul had begun the process of uh, the gospel reaching out um, into these places that were dominated by the powers of darkness. And so he did that. And Greeks and Romans respected the Jews as experts on things spiritual, especially as exorcists, those who cast out demons. If the Jews had forbidden or if the Jews God had forbidden them to speak his name the pagans reason then that name must be very strong and those allied to so strong a God should be able to enlist his power against lesser spirits that oppress people. Now that raises a whole plethora of questions about demonic agency in the present world and are there demons and is what, what what is wrong with some people demonic and my answer to that is yes it is but how do we know we don't uh, i used to have a very close friend and pastor in the ministry who i learned a lot from especially in in uh, encounters with individuals who were shall we say in the throes of darkness and his expression was shoot down every hole till you hit something and that obviously he was a southern guy that's a southern expression or as jerry clower used to say shoot up here amongst us one of us needs some relief and so i don't mean to be facetious when i say that but that stuff is real it is real and I don't want you to become obsessed of, obsessed with it or afraid of it but I want you to be aware of it and the power of Christ in the gospel is far more powerful than any of that kind of stuff now we're not to assume that the miracles we see in the book of Acts are typical and normal in ministry they are rather abnormal and atypical even the great Saint Paul did not consider them normative in his ministry he was an apostle how should then we do so? But second, on the other hand, this account should make us wary, wary of being skeptical and cynical about the power of God to heal. We should pray for God's power to heal people as we're told to do in the book of James, chapter 5 and verse 16. Now, we should see here that Jesus' name is not magic. The story is actually kind of humorous. Seven Jewish exorcists had heard about the power of Jesus' name and decided to try it out. They clearly don't understand the gospel for themselves. They say, I command you in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. Because they themselves do not preach or present Jesus. The demon talks back to them. The demon says, in effect, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who in the heck do you think you are? That's basically what the demon says. And jumps them and beats seven of them up now people who are demonized we know from the scripture uh often have supernatural strength uh how one guy can beat up seven uh is pretty remarkable but that's exactly what happened and uh so (laughs) The point is, there's nothing mechanically or automatically powerful about the sound of Jesus when the breath passes through the voice box in a particular way, contrary to some TV evangelists. The efficacy of Jesus' name lies only in the understanding of what Jesus came to do. It's the gospel of Jesus which is powerful. And when we use the gospel of Jesus on our own life, it cleanses and transforms and heals. But therefore, Jesus' name has no second-hand power. It only works firsthand when appropriated through personal understanding and commitment. We may want to look at ourselves here. Don't be too sure that we don't do what the seven sons of Sceva did. When we invoke his name and ask for help and power while we are not enjoying him or not walking in obedience to him, it's simply superstition and magic. We learn in verses 17 to 20 that true conversion leads to concrete change in a person's lifestyle. These new converts had been involved in occult practices and evil deeds. They made open and visible changes in their life. Those who renounced sorcery and burned their magic books did so at a great financial loss. Had they sold their manuscripts to keep their value, the books would have led others to stumble and thus be entangled. By the way, if you've got a Christian book that's got a heresy in it, don't sell it. Okay? I see people doing that. the time. put it on a book table, you know. Uh, well, the Jehovah's Witness gave it to me at my door. I'm going to put it where somebody... No, burn it. Get rid of it. You don't want that laying around. I mean, I'm not big on burning books, but those, burn them burn them. Now, I'm trying to remember exactly how much money that would have been worth, because 50,000 drachmas were in the millions of dollars, close to 50 million dollars. Now, you're going to see next week why a riot ensued, because if you strike the nerve of the cultural idolatry of that city and the economic boon and idolatry of that city, you will see riots occur. Riots are generally the result of some kind of idolatry. But that's an amazing place. When you read the book of Ephesians now, keep in mind Why Paul has in there the whole six chapters about spiritual warfare and about wrestling uh, not against flesh and blood but with the spiritual powers of darkness and the wonderful provision and hope of the armor of God for protection. And the armor of God is simply essential elements of the gospel that we wear being in Christ they're not pieces we got to go find they're pieces we already have in our identity as being united to christ what a wonderful uh letter this book is but what a powerful uh message today as to how the power of the gospel penetrates strongholds of the power of darkness and it doesn't do it neatly and cleanly it does it through uh catastrophe but god sovereignly overrules and brings out of that chaos the order that he always brings out of every chaos not only the chaos of a city the chaos of a country the chaos of a culture but the chaos that is in your heart and in mine god brings order that's peace to the brokenness and chaos of our own lives let us pray father we thank you today for this text we thank you for what it has shown us today about the unique and in many ways singular ministry of the Apostle Paul we know that a lot of what he did there is normative for the church some is unusual and strategic as the gospel was penetrating new cultures cultures in bondage to demonic powers And therefore, extreme miracles occur. We know that you are able to do anything by the mere exercise of your will. You cannot contradict yourself, but you can accomplish whatever your heart desires. And we pray that you would speak to us today. And we pray that people today, because they've heard this message, will come to Christ. People today, because they've heard this message, realize that maybe some of the practices of their life are in a gray area or in a danger zone because they're flirting with the occult. We pray that you would work repentance in us. Now, fathers, we continue to worship you. We pray you will bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.